0: Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, we got a lot to talk about today, so I want to get right to our conversation with our terrific uh, panel. It's Wednesday, which means that Greg Blustein, a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, is uh, with us, as usual, and the battle-scarred veteran of the Abrams, uh, Kemp, and Sean Hazel gubernatorial debate from the Atlanta Press Club the other night. Hi, Greg. <laughs>
1: we are sitting here waiting to get on the show. I got an email from Shane Hazel's campaign asking if we wanted to ask him any more questions. I think we're good on that front for now.
0: I, I told Donna Lowry, who was on yesterday and moderated that debate, that despite Hazel's continual interruptions, uh, I thought it was a very substantive debate in many ways. Kemp and Abrams each made it quite clear who they are and what they stand for, Greg. So you're to be congratulated as one of the people who was part of that debate.
1: We set out to hit the main issues, economy, abortion, guns, crime, education, criminal justice, all those issues. So we we, we got them all in uh, despite some uh, some interjections throughout the debate. <laughs> all
0: right. We're going to talk a little bit more about the uh, uh, press club debates a little bit later in the show. Uh, we're going to welcome for the first time to Political Rewind Meg Kennard, who is a national politics reporter for the Associated Press covering The Southeast. Meg, you uh, tell us you're a 17-year veteran of the Associated Press. You and Bluestein, way back in the day before he came to the AJC, were uh, colleagues. You grew up, you told us, in Memphis, uh, but you've been based here uh, in the South for quite some time now, yes?
2: That's right. I've been with AP for 17 years, living right here in South Carolina, but covering now the U.S. South. And um, yeah, I've got all the, the old school dirt on Bluestein. So guys, hit me up if you want some stories from, from
0: Greg's past to see AP. Happy to oh, oh, yeah. Well, I'd love to know about that. Matt Brown is back with us. Uh, Matt, the democracy reporter for the Washington Post. Matt, thank you for coming back to uh, Political Rewind today. We're very glad to have you here. You obviously cover a much broader uh, beat than just what's going on in Georgia, but clearly the Georgia election has been very important as you've uh, watched it unfold to your work.
3: Yeah, absolutely, Bill. It's always great to be here. And and it's definitely just the truth that you know questions of, of democracy and voting are obviously ground zero here in Georgia, and I, I couldn't be happier to, to you know, be, be living here back in Atlanta and, and right in the mix of it all.
0: Well, speaking of democracy and uh, voting, uh, Greg, we, uh, the second day of early voting once again drew thousands and thousands of people out to uh, the polls. Um, it, we now know that as of the end of voting yesterday, almost 300,000 people, 291,740 people cast ballots, 35 percent more than had voted as of the second day of early voting in 2018. And what I thought about in terms of that is we should remember that that 2018 election was a high-interest election, too, because it was the first contest between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp. But interest has spiked even beyond that.
1: Yeah, we're, we're setting records for midterm elections, and we're pushing near presidential level boundaries. Um, so it's giving Democrats a particular reason to cheer because the numbers of African-American voters who tend to obviously vote Democratic are soaring, as particularly black men. Um, and this has been a trend that we've talked about on the show that we've reported on that, that Democrats were particularly worried about black male turnout. Well, in this early voting numbers, and we're still very early, but they have reason to cheer. They have reason to be optimistic about the next couple of weeks.
0: 36 percent. Um, According to Ryan Anderson, who uh, runs the Georgia Votes website, which we all pay close attention to throughout uh, the voting, 36% of the turnout is among uh, black Georgians. Um, And uh, we have to remember that uh, uh, African-Americans represent 29% of the total population. So that's an impressive figure. Um, You know what, Matt, though? I'm interested in the fact that um, we usually see, I think I'm right, a much bigger uh, gap between women and men voters in general. And at least as of two days of voting, uh, those numbers are fairly close. It's uh, 53% of the voters are women, 47% are uh, men. Um, and we often like to think that we think that women tend, especially these days, to lean a bit more Democratic than Republican.
3: Yeah, no, it's definitely interesting. Um fact that there hasn't been that big of a gap so far, though we are seeing definitely women are leading here. I think it's also super important to note that just looking at the early voting numbers, just because of a lot of the voting changes that have happened this year um, or in the past year because of SB SB 202, the Election Integrity Act, it's an interesting point to note that early voting is one of the only places that we actually can see this, this high turnout of people right now. So, so, for instance, absentee ballots, because they were so affected in the policies that changed over the past couple of years, it's been a little bit more cumbersome for people to even just, like, apply for an absentee ballot, for instance, and figure out a drop box where they can drop it off. There's all these questions about voter challenges going on. And because of all of that, I think that it's an important thing to note that early voting is one of the only places where you can see people turning out this way. So, you know, older voters, th- for instance.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really important uh, point to make, and I appreciate that. We will start looking at absentee ballots uh, and, and in terms of the people who've applied for them at some point, but um, we're not quite there yet in terms of having a good grasp of what's going on with that. Meg, um, I think it's uh, interesting that as early voting has kicked off here, as we've seen record turnout so far, I, I want to talk just a bit about a story that your colleague, your Associated Press colleague, Hannah Fingerhut. Uh, ran a few days ago, uh, wrote a few days ago, that you tweeted out, and I'll I'll just read the lead to you and then ask you to comment on it. The Associated Press-Nork Center of Public Affairs Research finds 71% of registered voters think the very future of the United States is at stake when they vote this year. And she goes on to point out that that's true of voters who prefer Republicans or Democrats in Congress. The headline of that story was, Must Say, Most Safe Voting Vital, Despite Dour U.S. Outlook. What does that say to you?
2: I think it, it says, um, based out of the data, what we as reporters kind of say anecdotally all the time. You know, this is a really important election. Of course, they all are. But as we continue to go forward from cycle to cycle, As issues develop, as candidates develop their arguments, as the status of news events change, this is an important election, and there are a lot of things on voters' minds. We talked to those voters. We talked to more than 1,100 voters across the country, and that's exactly what they told us, that they are, in this moment, just weeks out from the election, thinking about the election, and at least for them personally in their own situations, really seeing it as something that's going to be having an impact on their lives. We broke that down into a variety of different issues, drilling down and, and trying to find out what specifically was most important to them. But yes, that's exactly what voters are telling us. They're
1: heading into the elections. They've got a lot on their minds,
2: and they see the importance in this moment.
1: And Bill, just as Meg said, you know, we've seen on the ground here in Georgia, right? Um, we've seen threats to democracy or other issues about, about voting rights and ballot access uh, show up in polls as the number two, number three, number four issue behind uh, behind the economy, uh, which, is, which is saying a lot, you know, with all the other issues that are going on. We've seen it coming up in debates, in the gubernatorial debate early on, in the debate um, uh, that Matt was involved in with the Secretary of State, of course. I mean, these are issues that are not going away at all.
0: Um, Matt, uh, here's another very important uh, uh, line from that uh, article. While about two-thirds of voters say they are pessimistic about politics, overwhelming majorities across party lines, eight in 10, say casting their ballot this year is extremely or very important. That that strikes me as an interesting contradiction.
3: Yeah, and I, th- I think that politics is full of contradictions, but that I think it's important to note here that because people do look at the country and they do feel very pessimistic about the direction of not just where things are going, but how, what role and type of society we're trying to be, I, I think that it's... Quite possible that voters also do understand that that because things are not going right, that their vote actually does matter a lot, and that it is something that they can actually engage in, and that that no matter no matter how not engaged with politics you normally might be, that this is an issue that's top of mind for people, just given the state of how polarized we are in a in a society where you know news events constantly are reminding people that that issues of politics are constantly affecting their day to day life.
0: Just to put a finishing touch on that, Meg, one of the other things that Hannah Fingerhut says is that voters are exhausted by the political process, but they're determined to participate and shape it. That's really interesting, too.
2: (laughs) Hey, it's, it's that determination that we as a society hope voters will bear out when it comes to actually voting in these elections. Yes, they're frustrated by all the ads, the inundation, especially in battleground states like Georgia, that they're experiencing kind of this fatigue Um, in the the closing weeks of the campaign. But people do seem to be showing that determination, whether it's because of their dissatisfaction of how issues pertinent to them are playing out on a national scale or even locally. Um, But still, they are determined to voice their opinions at the ballot box. So we're certainly seeing that in the number of people who have turned out already in Georgia and other states that are voting at this point across the country.
0: Yeah, Greg. Somebody, I think it was Donna Lowry, said on the show yesterday. It's too bad once you've cast your early vote that somehow the commercials on your own TV said can't be can't be canceled out, <laughs> so you don't have to watch them anymore. <laughs> but the good thing,
1: the good thing is you might get fewer texts, you might get fewer door knocks because that that, that does register with all the canvassers and all the other outreach efforts. So there's a hope that if you do vote early, you'll get bothered less uh, personally.
0: Okay, well, uh, w- one effort to, or a couple of efforts to really drum up turnout, Greg, uh, are going on in, uh, in, in uh, the Democratic campaign for governor. Stacey Abrams has got uh, an event tomorrow with none other than Oprah Winfrey. According to the reporting that you all have done in the AJC, Abrams reached out to uh, Winfrey and asked her if she could in- get involved in some way in helping her out in her campaign, right?
1: Yeah, and remember, Oprah came back in 2018 for an in-person event, and it was sold out like that. I mean, it was, it was like nothing else I've ever seen. I had, I had all sorts of colleagues of mine suddenly volunteering to go cover Oprah. Uh, I was, I remember I was out with Mike Pence somewhere in North Georgia with with Kemp, but, uh, you know, it's another sign of, of Stacey Abrams relying on star star power uh, to help energize her coalition of voters.
0: Well, there's another big star coming in for Raphael Warnock. I want to talk about that in a minute. But this is a pledge show. Um, We are asking you, uh, as we've been doing uh, for the last couple of weeks, to please find a way to support Political Rewind and the other shows here on uh, GPB Radio. Here's how you can do it.
3: Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today.
0: Matt Brown, democracy reporter for The Washington Post, Meg Kennard, national politics reporter for Associated Press, and of course, Greg Bluestein of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution on the show today. Greg, we talked about Oprah just before the break. I think people who listen to this show regularly know my wife, Janice Schaefer, and I are very uh, uh, eager uh, uh, attendees of New York theater, so for me... The big score today is that Lynn manuel Miranda is coming in to campaign for Raphael uh, Warnock. Uh, of course, Miranda became uh, universally famous, really, uh, when Hamilton became one of the biggest hits in New York theater history. Uh, but Greg, here's one of the things that's interesting about that. it His appearance here is to drum up support for Warnock among Hispanic voters. And just coincidentally, um, we now have the uh, AJC... Uh, GPB and the Georgia News Collaborative have just released a poll of uh, Hispanic voters. And while it shows that Abrams and Kemp in that community are virtually in a dead heat, uh, it shows that Walker does seem to have an advantage over Warnock outside the margin of error. Now, we should say this is a very small sample size, very small. So we've got to start with that. Nevertheless, it's there.
1: It's there. And like exactly what you said, the the margin of error is larger than usual. And the sample size is very small. It's about 300 or so voters. Um, But there is a lag. Um, There is about a seven or so point lag between um, Herschel Walker and Senator Raphael Warnock. And this is coming at a time when both parties are really stepping up their outreach, stepping up their involvement, engagement with Hispanic voters, with Asian American voters, with voters of color. We've reported and you guys have talked about how the RNC has opened up offices particularly in Gwinnett County, um, and in the North Atlanta suburbs, particularly geared at Hispanic voters, um, because both parties recognize that this block of voters, even though it's small, is becoming increasingly important, and a state as closely divided as Georgia, even small fluctuations in voting patterns can have big dividends.
0: Okay, so uh, uh, Miranda is here with Warnock, I think, this afternoon, somewhere in uh, metro Atlanta, right, Greg?
1: Yeah, uh, right near downtown Atlanta.
0: Okay. Um, Meg, let's turn to abortion uh, and talk about the Democrats really stepping up their uh, push uh, for uh, convincing voters that uh, they need to elect Democrats to reestablish choice for uh, women across the country. Um, We had President Biden yesterday give a speech saying that if Democrats retain control of Congress, he's going to push for a law to codify abortion rights in, in national law. Now, But we know, Meg, Democrats are unlikely to uh, keep control of the House, and it's questionable whether they'll be able to do the same in the Senate. But but at least he's putting it on the radar and, and establishing once again how important Democrats feel it is to their chances to win in the fall.
2: Absolutely. That's something that we've seen Democrats across the country talking about, particularly since the Dobbs case decision came out earlier this year, but there's kind of been a fluctuation in, in really seeing campaigns and then therefore seeing voters' reactions to those campaigns when it comes to Democrats making that argument about how abortion should be this issue that, that has um, supremacy when it comes to considering which way to vote um, going into these fall elections over and over. The AP has seen it in, in our own polling and news organizations across the country, reporters as well. We're hearing from voters that it's really the economy to a lot of them that is top of mind when it comes to thinking, which way am I going to vote? What actually affects me most directly, independently, my family? What is, you know, where do we really need to see our representation fighting for us on what issue? And it's not abortion. It's the economy. I will say um, I was actually with former Vice President Mike Pence last night at an event here in South Carolina And he was making, a, in part of his remarks, making a direct counter to President Biden's comments on abortion and -hmm. referencing exactly what you just said about congressional control and how come January it's not going to be President Biden or his party that is going to be able to say anything federally about abortion because, as Pence said, it's going to be Republicans who are coming back into control in Congress. That's a political argument. Of course, the voters will decide. Um, but you know, from that side of of the table, that's certainly the way he's forecasting the midterm results.
0: Um, Matt, that's just one of the things that Biden said as well in his speech yesterday. "Quote: The final say does not rest in the court now. It does not rest with extreme Republicans in Congress. It rests with you, the voters." Matt.
3: Yeah, and I think that that's absolutely right in a lot of ways. And I think that it's important to note that it, uh, the way that abortion. Um, and plays across the country isn't necessarily going to be the same in Michigan or Nevada as it is going to be in Georgia. Like these are different electorates um, that have um, different sentiments as we understand them. So the, the turnout that I think is going to be really important is whether or not this issue and issues like it are going to actually be galvanizing the voters. And and we've seen over the past couple years that obviously in a state as polarized and diverse as Georgia, it it oftentimes can just come down to the turnout game and who's the most motivated to cast a ballot to actually see what the final margin is going to be in a lot of these situations.
0: Greg, uh, a couple of points about this. Number one, Abrams' uh, campaign has now released an ad. It shows us couples talking directly into camera, Couples who have struggled after having had miscarriages. And they maintain in the ad that under the uh, uh, heartbeat law in Georgia, uh, the women could be criminally liable uh, because there's uh, not a clear understanding of how miscarriages are dealt with in Georgia law and how they might be investigated by law enforcement.
1: Yeah, this is something that's been a point of contention between Democrats and Republicans, um, not just in the governor's race, but in the race for AG and other offices. Uh, because Republicans will say that this is not the intent of the law. That the intent of the law was not to ever criminalize women, just the, the abortion providers, the healthcare, the healthcare officials. Um, but uh, Democrats say, especially with the personhood addition, uh, mm-hmm. the provisions in this in this anti-abortion law, that it makes it very unclear and that it opens the door. Uh, for potential prosecutions. So this has been sort of an undercurrent of all these campaigns throughout. And, of course, Stacey Abrams has been talking about this long before this TV ad.
0: Um, your point uh, came up, of course, in the debate between uh, Jen Jordan, the Democratic candidate for attorney general, and incumbent Republican Chris Carr. Um, Jordan said just what you're saying. She she said that this personhood aspect of the law could uh, find women criminally liable uh, if, uh, if for mistreatment of a fetus uh, before the baby is even born, uh, of per- perhaps homicide uh, if the baby is aborted uh, in some way. And, of course, Chris Carr pushed back strongly on that, Greg, and said, look, that's not the intent of the law. There's nothing in the law that says that. Uh, but we know that laws can be stretched in, in the ways uh, that, that could, in fact, perhaps create liabilities there, Greg.
1: Yeah, this is where there's <clears throat> there's a little gray area because the person provisions provisions uh, grant rights to an embryo in the womb at any stage of development. And many states have not adopted this this language. So it's a, a murky area. Uh, you, you mentioned what, what Senator Jen, State Senator Jen Jordan said, uh, Chris Carr said, essentially, that um, that that the legislature that when courts consider these these bills the intent of the legislature it must also be considered and that was not the intent of the legislature to, to criminalize um uh, abortion for for the women getting that procedure
0: meg the other uh, bone of contention between jordan and chris carr is that um jen jordan has said throughout the campaign that if she's elected attorney general she has no intention of pursuing uh cases against uh, uh doctors women who have abortions in the state. Chris Carr says that's a dereliction of duty. Uh, in the debate, uh, Jordan tried to clarify that by saying, well, what I really mean by that is I want to challenge this law in court as a violation of Georgia's privacy uh, 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 section. Um, but it's going to be a contention, a contentious point between them all the way through the election.
2: Yeah, I, I think part of that is what we're seeing as emblematic in a lot of these continuing debates about different states as Right Now states are the the show places where these debates over abortion are being carried out. And what we're seeing is a continuation of that argument of these these furthered court fights at every single level. That's something that was was forecast from day one um, whenever this debate came back down to the state level, that none of these laws, even if they were to be enacted right after the Dodds decision, um, that there wouldn't be really a, an opportunity for them to be utilized for a long time because there would be these continued legal challenges. And so that's something that, that candidates all across the, the country are really spinning forward at these, the attorney general level and even at other levels of,
0: of electoral office. Um, all right, Matt, um, I want to turn to you because you were part of a debate panel uh, in the Secretary of State's uh, race between uh, B. Wynn and Brad Raffensperger. Um, give us a sense of how you saw that debate unfold. What seemed to you to be important points that were made by either candidate in that debate?
3: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely a lively debate. We also had um, Ted Metz, the libertarian who was there, who um, also um, threw a couple bombs of his own at both the candidates. Um, I think that it was an interesting <laughs> time to see Brad Raffensperger, who obviously has become known nationally for resisting some of Trump's, Pressure campaign to overturn the 2020 election to say that um, he really wanted to highlight that and say that I've resisted pressure from you know all sides and and you can you can see me as a trusted hand of Georgia's elections at the same time that Bwin was attacking him for saying that you back some of the. Um, controversial election policies that were enacted in 2021 around um, new voting, new voting policies in Georgia. And also that you are and she also sought to highlight his chances on abortion, that he's a very strong life, pro, strong pro-life Republican. Um, I think that that controversy really got to the core of the debate over democracy here in Georgia and, and how Waffensperger, mm. for instance, cited issues of you know, Stacey Abrams' non concession in 2018 versus um, B saying that, well, you can't compare that to Donald Trump's explicit attempts to overturn the election in 2020. And just that, that contrast was so evident that I, I thought it was a, a fascinating. Um, they, they did not hide from who they were, shall we say. Uh,
0: thank you. For, I want wonder... to... Let's talk a little bit more uh, about that debate, Um, but we got to get to another pledge break. Um, I I do want to point out, just for those of you who listen to the show every day, uh, for the last two days, our pledge team has given up their time on this show because we wanted to talk about the uh, debates between uh, uh, Warnock and Walker, between Abrams and Kemp, and uh, we, we got our full hours to do that, but we do need to finish this pledge drive this week Um, doing as well as we can in assuring that we have the funds we need to keep Political Rewind moving forward. So here's how you can do it if you haven't become a donor. We're back with more on Political Rewind. Greg, uh, Matt Brown just gave us his take on the Secretary of State's debate, which he was a participant in. Um, B. Wynn does seem to be fighting some pretty strong headwinds here. And, and of course, it's because um, Brad Raffensperger has made himself quite palatable uh, to uh, voters who uh, are, are independent Uh, not tied specifically to to, uh, the Democratic or Republican Party, or maybe some Democratic voters even, who are saying, look, this is a guy who pushed back strongly against Donald Trump. He deserves another four years in office. Despite his conservative credentials, which the win campaign is trying so hard to get across in uh, in her stump speeches and also in the ads they've put out there. And to some extent... Uh, the same effect is uh, having an impact on the Kemp race, I would suggest. He pushed back, too, on Donald Trump, which uh, may have confused some people into thinking he's a moderate, which he is certainly not. <laughs> which he's not. Yeah.
1: Look, I mean, Bill, a couple, a couple of years ago, I mean, you even political junkies here in Georgia might not have been able to recognize Brad Raffensperger. Now he's the most famous elections official in the nation, I'd argue, um, we didn't even think, at least I didn't even think he would qualify to run for another term because I thought he was you know, going to be in such trouble with the Republican base. And instead, he trounced Jody Heist, the Republican congressman who's backed by Donald Trump and who was promoting these election fraud lies. Um, so we're in this really unique spot where we saw in that in that primary, uh, in that Republican primary, a number of Democrats cross over and vote to support Brad Rappensburg. And the challenge for be to win, and this is the argument she's making, is that. Brad Raffensperger is no friend, in her words, to Democrats and to voting rights advocates. And she equates him with some of the uh, – not necessarily, if not with Donald Trump, but with um, other Republicans who are looking to put obstacles on the ballot box. And so that's the argument she made at that debate uh, yesterday.
2: Meg? Yeah, you know, it, exactly as Greg said, that's the argument that we continue to see in these situations where there have been Republicans who gave Donald Trump pushback. And then in the situation of Brad Raffensperger, in the countless stories that the AJC and The Washington Post, and the AP, that we've all been writing about the continuing investigation as it pertains to the 2020 election results in Georgia Brad Raffensperger's name continues to come up as the person who was on the phone with Donald Trump and Lindsey Graham and other people discussing what was going on with the election results there. And in those stories, which are just portraying the facts of what happened, it's a reminder to voters, as they consider Raffensperger's reelection in this case, that he was the one who was just, in his argument, standing up for democracy and the election results as they were and not what other people wanted them to be. So again, that's where real life kind of crosses over into politics, and in certain circumstances may help Brad Raffensperger make his reelection argument to voters, um, you know, whether they be Republicans or Democrats for the general
0: election. Matt, uh, it strikes me that something else is being demonstrated by certainly the Raffensperger race, but but really up and down the ballot of statewide constitutional officers. That The challenge that Democrats have is in so many of these races. They're facing incumbents. It's certainly Stacey Abrams' challenge against Brian Kemp. It's Jen Jordan's challenge against Chris Carr. The win against um, Raffensperger. I mean, up and down the ballot, we see how hard it is to displace a, uh, an incumbent. Yeah, no, Matt, I think that did we,
3: um, oh. I think, oh, yeah. that, I think that Brian Kemp puts it, puts it um, well himself, where he says that you might not um, have voted for me and like everything that I did, but you can't say that I didn't do it. And I think that that just kind of name recognition and um, you know, ab- ability to use the power of your office while campaigning to do things that voters like and would pay attention to is, I think, something that's a, um, oftentimes a difficult thing for a candidate who can just say, well, hypothetically, if I was in office, I would be trying to do these things for you. But they're not in office, so they can't necessarily do that. I also think that it's an important thing that just on the democracy front, when voters are looking around and saying that I'm concerned about the state of the country or I'm concerned about, you know, potential um, election deniers, which is something that we here at The Washington Post have been covering a lot um, in, the, in the airs to um, Donald Trump and the Republican Party. W- when Joe Biden says that there are reasonable Republicans, MAGA Republicans and everybody else. I think that Georgia Republicans have been some of the biggest beneficiaries of that because a lot of them did resist Donald Trump's um, pressure campaign to overturn the 2020 results. And so now they can, um, people like Raffensperger, who's a bit more moderate in generally, or even conservatives like Carr and Kemp can say, I campaigned, uh, I can campaign as a strident conservative, but also I am not irrational or, or denying reality when it comes to, you know, some, some basic um, facts that have been verified through, through the Georgia legal system.
0: Okay, by the way, I, I want to make it clear because I'm already hearing your uh, emails hit my inbox. I am not suggesting the challengers don't have a chance to win in any number of these races. I'm just saying the bar is a little higher for them because they are facing incumbents. Greg Lustein, um, let's talk now that the debates are over about where what happened, particularly in the top uh, debates. Um, the last Friday night debate, which did feature Warnock and Walker on the stage together, um, and the Kemp-Abrams uh, debate with Shane Hazel in the middle of it all. You, take your pick. Um, what stood out for you? Let, let's start with the governor's debate. Do you think that Abrams n- made inroads against Brian Kemp? Did he hold his ground? How do you feel that debate unfolded? You were part of it.
1: Yeah, I thought going into that debate, Governor Kemp just had to avoid errors. Uh, he's above in the polls. He's up in the polls. He's up five to eight to 10 points, even in some recent polls. And so he wanted to avoid a major gap, a major blunder, uh, something for Stacey Abrams and her allies to seize upon. They feel like they got a few things here and there. You know, Governor Kemp misstated uh, some gun rules. Um, there was a time where Governor Kemp said that Stacey Abrams seemed upset. Uh, Which 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 angered some of Stacey Abrams' opponent uh, supporters, but overall the governor had a a, a, a solid showing. I think his his team was very happy. I know as he left the debate stage, he was asked whether or not he would join the spin room. He he said, "Winners don't spin." So that was that was his spin on the debate. Um, Stacey Abrams, um, I think she had a very good performance. Um, She made her points. we, we've, we, as, as, as we mentioned earlier, we wanted to focus on the biggest issues of this race and not get distracted by some of the sideshows. And I think, I feel like we did that. Um, I feel like the candidates did that, but of course, Shane Hazel, um, I think diminished a lot of the back and forth between those two candidates staying in the middle. And I think, I think governor Kemp was just fine with that. <laughs> you know, he was just fine with some of the attention being off of him.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I, I had the same thought, Meg, that unfortunately, Shane Hazel was such a disruptive presence in that debate. Now, look, you know, you you may want libertarians to be part of of debates because you believe that third-party candidates should be heard more often. But but Hazel was a particularly disruptive force. And it did strike me as I watched that debate unfold uh, that he really did interfere with any ability of Stacey Abrams to really zero in on Kemp in a much uh, more direct way.
2: Yeah, we hear all the time, you know, from third-party candidates themselves, from their supporters, why aren't more of these candidates involved in debates? It's, it's your job on the media's part to make sure that we as the voters hear from them in these sorts of forums. But oftentimes in debates, what I think can be most informative for voters is that ability for the candidates to really directly talk to each other and to go back and forth. And that's complicated when you have more than two people on a stage. I mean, goodness. Just think back to the presidential primaries that we've seen in recent cycles, where you have maybe a dozen people on stage at a time, <laughs> and and it's hard for not only voters to really you know discern from that where the candidates stand, but hard for the candidates to get a word in sometimes. And so, yes, that is that's complicated. Um, but you know, the voters maybe hopefully are being informed, but sometimes it's just really hard to get a, a cohesive message out of the candidates, the more participants that yeah. you have. Know.
0: You know, despite all that, Matt, I do have to say I thought it was a substantive debate and that that there was no doubt at the end of it where Stacey Abrams stands and where Brian Kim stands. So voters did get a picture of both of those things. Um, But if I can, I'd like to ask you about the Senate race uh, debate, uh, Matt. Um, you know, there are many people who say that uh, that Walker set expectations low himself. I think the media played a role in setting low expectations for Walker, and most people agree that last Friday night he uh, certainly uh, exceeded the low expectations and actually had a pretty good uh, debate in many ways. What was your take on that?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think that it's important to note that, um, Walker was saying, you know, before beforehand, like, you know, I'm 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 just a dumb country boy and I and you shouldn't be able to um, you know, expect that much from me. And then he actually did come out and had um, a couple of zingers on Warnock, and, and Warnock didn't necessarily land the, the same type of zinger, zingers on him. I, I think getting past the, the political theater part of this, though, it, it, it is, I don't know that this actually is going to move that many votes in either direction, because the, the debate wasn't necessarily that revelatory in terms of policy for a lot of people. I think that no. the, the, the yeah. driving thing that you saw in the debate was that um, Walker, I think, because of his showing, the, the thing that is going to actually move him here is that a lot of Republicans and voters who were looking for a reason to support him were able to see that, OK, this guy actually can say certain things. And that actually is a tangible that a lot of people really were looking for. I don't know that this is going to change the entire dynamic in terms of whether or not the independent voters who were hesitant about him for, for substantive reasons. I don't know that he um. actually addressed that, or Warnock even addressed it. So any any substantive policy concerns that you would have for either candidate, I don't know that those types of things were actually addressed in this debate. But I do think that this might make it so that a lot of conservative voters have a much easier time coming home to the Republican camp, despite all of Walker's other, other scandals that have been circling him.
0: Greg, your take on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, even taking the expectations came out of it. Um, this was a debate where the format hurt Democrats because th- that debate could have easily – is an hour long. Half of it could have easily focused on uh, Herschel Walker's personal baggage, the history of lies, exaggerations, promoting false claims, um, history of violence, erratic behavior, and, and not to mention you know, the, the Daily Beast line of reporting about the, t- the claims that he, he paid for a 2009 abortion for his, his girlfriend. And instead, we got one or two questions and then focused on other issues, which is, you know, the, the, the moderators, the panelists' prerogative. Um, but that hurt Senator Warnock um, in, in that sense because there was not there dwelling on those issues. Instead, there was talk about other issues, right? Uh, he, had, he came out with a few attack lines. Um, he came out swinging once or twice. But in general, I felt like we, we saw more of the bracing attacks in the Sunday Atlanta Press Club debate where there was an into yeah. and not on the Friday yeah. debate when he actually had a chance to confront his opponent one-on-one
0: yeah, um, I'd argue that the moderators on Friday night really uh, hurt uh, the ability of really both candidates. I mean, but but by being so tough on, you know, interrupting candidates and saying they're not following the rules, I thought they interfered with the whole debate. But, Greg, one other quick point, and, and then I want to hear Meg's take. I think even if you go back to 2020, I've always looked at, at Warnock, the preacher, the, the, you know, wonderful preacher – as being a strangely passive debater. I thought in his debate with Leffler, we saw an example of that. All the attention was on Leffler's robotic performance. But, but Warnock doesn't seem to want to engage in an aggressive debate strategy. Yeah, you know,
1: and, and look, he, he's, a, he's a passionate speaker. He has a great experience uh, um, speaking in front of crowds, but that doesn't necessarily make you a good debater. Um, and he hasn't had a lot of debate experience. He only had a couple of debates last year, and most of them were kind of under the radar because they were before that runoff period. Um, and he, he does like to try to stay above the fray, and he does dodge questions. And he dodged questions in that runoff debate a couple of years ago, and he dodged questions in the
0: Friday debate as well. Um, Meg, what did you think about that Senate debate?
2: There's always so much debate about debates, right? I mean, oftentimes we don't see candidates <laughs> even, even facing off with each other at all until these closing minutes. And Herschel Walker not debating any of his primary um, contenders in, in that part of the race. So, yes, you know, there were some missed opportunities, I think, to really get more substantively into some of the issues that are on voters' minds um, right now into the closing stretch. Um, But I guess it'll be up to the TV ads and and the other media that we'll be consuming over the next couple of weeks to continue hearing from these candidates.
0: Speaking of closing uh, statements, uh, Meg uh, Kennard, you get the closing statement in today's Political Rewind. Thank you, Meg, so much for joining us. It was great to have you on for your first appearance on the show. Matt Brown, we've loved uh, including you on the show. So thank you for being here. Bluestein, you know. I love looking forward to Wednesdays when you're going to be my partner on this show. We are completely out of time for today. Marjorie Taylor Greene is really making headlines. There's a New York Times Magazine piece on her that we're going to talk about tomorrow. I think it's really important uh, to discuss how she has risen in prominence in the Republican Party. We'll do that and a lot more on tomorrow's show. In the meantime, we're out of time. We're going to send you back to our pledge team to tell you how you can help us out. Um, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. Get out and vote early. Why not do it now? See you all tomorrow.